Hey man, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You got some information, thoughts, or views that you want the world to hear? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other places people like to listen? Man, the big question though was how do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of those questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. So best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with a great sponsors too, so you can get paid to podcast. One of the benefits that I really love about doing my podcast with Anchor is the ability to get my podcast on multiple platforms with the click of a button. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm backward slash start. Go to anchor.fm slash start. One more time for the people in the back. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me in a diverse community of podcasters already using anchor that's anchor.fm slash start i can't wait to hear your podcast till next time welcome to the page turners podcast i am your host elgin bailey aka big l aka mr catch 22 a.k.a. Bishop Heavy Set Voice. <laughs> you are tuned in, man, to the only podcast of this kind where we take a look at books and we do book studies. We have book discussions, interviews with authors, books here, books there, books everywhere, tackling, examining, talking, discussing about books from a Black perspective. You are now listening to episode number 15, family. I can't even begin to tell you guys how excited I am about what this podcast is becoming. Uh, I'm so thrilled, man. I'm I'm beyond excited uh, about this particular endeavor. I wish it was something that I would have gotten started. A long time ago, uh, there is a ton of ton of books, man. Ton of books that I want to discuss. There's a couple of local artists, I mean, local authors um, that I want to set up some interviews with, man, to plug their work, man, plug their book. Just to kind of have a discussion, I got one brother in mind, man, who uh, I think you guys would really enjoy listening to him discuss the book. Uh, so uh, I'm going to reach out to him sometime this week and see if I can get him on and we can wrap man, and discuss uh, discuss his work. But in season one, man, we have been discussing Black Theology and Black Power by Dr. James H. Cone. 
the late great Dr. James H. Cone, the father of black liberation theology. Um, I'm excited. I'm loving the feedback from everybody uh, who's listened, who's commented, who have sent out uh, questions in my inbox and things along those lines. And I hear you. I got to do a better job of adding my contact information to the show description. So episode 15, you'll see my contact information, man, where folks can reach out uh, and share their thoughts. We are in chapter three of Black Theology, Black Power. We are halfway through the book, family. We are halfway through. I plan on finishing chapter three tonight uh, because I it's only a couple pages of chapter three left. Uh, I want to get that done because chapter four begins the black church and black power. And I'm really excited about that. But I want to finish up chapter three, the white church and black power. Uh, trying to think, was there any other housekeeping, man, that I needed to address anything else I wanted to talk about? Uh, no. So let's dig into let's dig into the text, man. Brief, basic, quick summary of Black Theology, Black Power. First published in 1969, Black Theology and Black Power provided the first systemic, systematic presentation of Black Theology, relating the militant struggle for liberation with the gospel message of salvation. James Cone laid out the foundation for an original interpretation of Christianity that retains its urgency and challenge today. Okay. Chapter 13. The white church and black power. As much as white churchmen may want to hedge on this issue, it is not possible. The issue is clear. Racism is a complete denial of the incarnation and thus of Christianity. Therefore, the white denominational churches are unchristian. They are a manifestation of both a willingness to tolerate it and desire to perpetuate it. Let me be honest, man. I know in the, the current climate that we live in with uh, the current president, we've seen a lot of discourse between white Christians or rather white evangelicals and black Christians. Uh, there's been the charge from black Christians that white evangelicals uh, are responsible in many ways for the current president, that they have been uh, complacent in their silence uh, against white supremacy. And the charge from many white evangelicals is that black Christians who complain or speak up or push social issues are attempting to replace or attempting to preach a whole separate gospel. So oftentimes when you see white Christians align themselves with anti-blackness, white supremacy rhetoric, uh, the charge from black Christians is that 
those white evangelicals are not Christian because they have some sort of racist white supremacist ideology or they've committed some sort of racist act. And I, I'm on the fence with that, man. I'm on the fence with that. I won't go so as, as far to say that racism is the sin. Matter of fact, I'll, be, I'll say it's, it's clear. As a Christian, and listen, this podcast, The Page Turners, is not a Christian podcast. It is a podcast that happens to be hosted by a Christian. There's, and there's a, a, a huge distinction there because many of the books that we'll be addressing in discussion won't be quote-unquote Christian books or have a Christian concept. But I believe that you can find truth in many places. Truth. Not the truth, Jesus, but truth. And I want to be clear, man, because I... I, I and I say that to to follow up on the point about racism. I don't believe that racism is the sin that kicks one out of the kingdom. I don't believe that sin racism is the sin that kicks people out of Christianity. And I know a number of Christians will love to debate that. And you can reach out to me at Elgin Bailey, uh, Page Turners. BTM at Gmail to set it up. We can do live videos, chats, whatever the case may be. You're going to have to show me in scripture where it shows that being a racist disqualifies you from being a Christian. I think we tend to say that, or y'all tend to say that, because it makes you feel some level of comfort in the belief that Christians, you know, can't be racist. And I'm of the mindset of, yes, they can. Racism is not a sin that disqualifies one for not being a Christian. It's a sin like every other possible sin. But I think we tend to gravitate towards this notion that it is a sin because it's not loving your neighbor. It's it's not demonstrating many of the other quote unquote Christian qualities. But neither is lying, neither is stealing, neither is adultery, and none of those sins disqualifies you from being a Christian. So I think it, that's that's one of the areas where I think we we fall into a real, real tricky place when we want to use that claim that racists can't be Christians. I don't agree with that. I believe, you know, you can be a Christian, a Christian who lies, a Christian who steals, a Christian who commits murder. Racism doesn't disqualify one from being sin, uh, a Christian. And again, this is not a Christian podcast. This just happens to be a, a Christian text or a text that is written by a Christian that we're addressing this time. Okay. So I just wanted to, to, to say all that after that first sentence that Dr. Cohn states where he says racism is a complete denial of the incarnation and thus of Christianity. 
Therefore, the white denominational churches are unchristian. I, I, I don't fully agree with that. I understand the perspective. I understand where he's going. And I understand what many of you guys are saying when you say that. But I think it's a real slippery slope there. Okay? And the text reads, The old philosophical distinction between the primary and secondary qualities of objects provides an analogy here where only the primary qualities pertain to the essence of a thing regarding the church are not fellowship and service primary qualities without which the church is not the church. Can we still speak of a community as being Christian if their body is racist through and through? It is my contention that the racism implies the absence of fellowship and service, which are primary qualities indispensable marks of the church. To be racist is to be is to fall outside the definition of the church. In our time, the issue of racism is an analogy to the Aryan controversy of the fourth century. Athenius perceived quite clearly that if Arius's view were tolerated, Christianity would be lost. But few white churchmen have questioned whether racism was a similar denial of Jesus Christ. Even Halsden Certainly one of the most sensitive of the white churchmen who have written on the subject can speak of white Christian races. If there's any contemporary meaning of the Antichrist or the principalities and powers, the white church seems to be the manifestation of it. It is the enemy of Christ. It was the white Christian church which took the lead in establishing slavery as an institution and segregation as a pattern in society by sanctioning all white congregations. As Frank Lobster pointed out, its very existence as an institution is a symbol of the philosophy of white supremacy. And that is not the truth right there. Oh, I'm drinking some water, man. So if you hear the, the crackling of the bottle, forgive me. I'm wetting my palate a little bit. Excuse me. No, I absolutely agree that the white evangelical church, man, is the symbol, the philosophy of white supremacy. And the text reads, long before the little signs, white only and colored, appeared in the public utilities, they had appeared in the church. Yeah. Ah, excuse me. Halsen shows clearly the work of the church in setting the pattern which later became general law for all America, saying that Many of the things that we saw, many of the Jim Crow laws, many of the issues that we saw take place against the, the white terrorism against blacks was very much done by white Christians. So this that's where my 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 my, my that's what troubles me when people say that races can't be Christians. I, I don't know. I think that is a, a worthy and a much needed discussion that to, to be had. I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I think it will be very beneficial for black Christians in particular to to have the discussion and unpack the that that that, that layers of 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 stuff to cut through before we just go ahead and make the general statement, because I think there's some some richness there that we can discuss 
theology-wise and doctrine and unpack it. And I think just sometimes, man, we 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 don't want to do that for whatever reason, man. For whatever reason, I think I think it's important for us to do that, man. And the text reads. First came the segregation of the Negro within the church and then followed the separation of churches by the spontaneous withdrawal of the Negro Christian. Much later, the elaborate patterns of segregation were to arise in the church and in secular society. With its all-white congregation, it makes racism a respectable attitude. By remaining silent, it creates an ethos which dehumanizes blacks. Man. It is the church which preaches that blacks are inferior to whites, if not by word, certainly by moral example. In the old slavery days, the church preached that slavery was a divine decree, and it used the Bible as the basis of its authority. Not only did Christianity fail to offer the Negro hope of freedom in this world, but the manner in which Christianity was communicated to him tended to degrade him. The Negro was taught that his enslavement was due to the fact that he had been cursed by God. His very color was a sign of the curse which he had received as the descendant of Ham. Parts of the Bible were carefully selected to prove that God had intended that the Negro should be a servant of the white man and that he would always be a hewer of wood and a drawer of water. Man. Several ministers even wrote books justifying slavery. It may be, wrote George D. Armstrong in The Christian Doctrine of Slavery, that Christian slavery is God's solution of the problem, relation of labor and capital, about which the wisest statesmen of Europe confesses themselves at fault. In another book, Slavery Ordained of God, Fred A. Ross wrote that slavery is ordained of God to continue for the good of the slave the good of the master, the good of the whole American family, until another and better destiny may be unfolded. Damn. Today, that same church sets the tone for the present in the in humanity to blacks by remaining silent as blacks are killed for wanting to be treated like human beings. Like other segments of the society, the church emphasizes obedience to the law of the land without asking whether the law is racist in character or without even questioning the everyday deadly violence which laws and law enforcers inflict on blacks in the ghetto. They are quick to, to condemn black power as a concept and the violence in the ghetto without saying a word about white power and its 350 years of constant violence against black. It was a church which placed God's approval on slavery and today places his blessing on the racist structure of American society. As long as whites can be sure that God is on their side, there is potential no limit to their violence against anyone who threatens the American racist way of life. Genocide is the logical conclusion of racism. It happened to the American Indian, and there's ample reason to believe that America is prepared to do the same to blacks. That's an uncomfortable truth, man. The uncomfortable truth is there is there there has to be a culmination of uh, of of I don't know whether it's violence or forces that come together to end what is taking place. 
There has to be, there's what, what there has to be, whether it's violence, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, man. And I, I love the fact that later on, towards the end of the book, man, Dr. Cohn addresses the violence and the reconciliation aspect. So I don't want to jump too head, too far ahead in, in my thoughts. I want to stay with the text, but that, that, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot to wrestle with, man. It's a lot to wrestle with. And the text reads, many writers have shown the church's vested interest in slavery and racism. At first, the white Christian questioned the Christianizing of the slave because of the implications of equality in the Bible because of the fear that education may cause the slave to fight for his freedom. Slave masters at first forbade the baptism of slaves on the ground that it was an invasion of their property rights. But the churchmen assured them that there was no relationship between Christianity and freedom in civil manners. In the words of the Bishop of London, Christianity and the embracing of the gospel does not make the least alteration in civil property or in any of the duties which belong to the civil relations. But in all these respects, it continues persons just in the same state as it found them. The freedom which Christianity gives is a freedom from the bondage of sin and Satan and from the dominion of man's lusts and passions and inordinate desires. But as to their own outward condition, whatever that was, whether bond or free, their being baptized and become a Christian makes no matter of change in it. And that's what you see, man, in a lot of the, the Christian ministry uh, missionaries. A lot of the white missionaries, man, today and yesterday, were concerned about the condition of blacks' soul. It, it didn't matter that their, their, their physical bodies were in a state of oppression, hurt, pain, whatever the case may be, captivity. As long as their souls were taken care of, everything was all right. Hmm. Ooh. And the text reads, in fact, some churchmen argued that Christianity made back blacks better slaves. Yeah, we, 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 we saw that then and we still see it today. Christianity made better slaves because what did it do? It made many blacks docile. And we see it, it's the same thing today that many blacks would rather run to their prayer closet to fight white supremacy than to even practice something as simple as group economics. The text reads, when slaves began to get rebellious about their freedom, according to the Methodist missionaries, it was missionary influence that moderated their passions, kept them in steady course of duty, prevented them from sinning against God by offending against the laws of man. Whatever outbreaks of insurrection at any time occurred, no Methodist slave was ever proved guilty of incinerarism or rebellion for more than 70 years, namely from 1760 to 1833. <laughs> Many ministers even owned slaves. Surprise. In 1844, 200 Methodist traveling preachers owned 1,600 slaves, 
1,000 local preachers owned 10,000 slaves. This fact alone indicates the white Methodist churches tolerated and propagation of the slavery system. There is no evidence that it saw any real contradiction between slavery and essential Christianity. And I think that's the chief argument that the white races don't see anything contradictory between the actual gospel and their white supremacist ideology. They see nothing contradictory about it. And I want to say it's cognitive dissonance, but I just want, I'm going to say that it's just them upholding their power position in white supremacy. And the text reads, some northern white Methodist churchmen would probably remind me that the church split precisely over that issue in 1844. This seems to suggest that at least the North was against slavery. Don't buy that, family. If the North was against slavery, it nevertheless had no intention of viewing blacks as men. Northern churchmen are reminded that it was in their section of the country that free Negroes succeeded from various white churches because of intolerable humiliation by whites. Richard Allen. It was the Northerners who pulled Richard Allen and his companions from their knees as they knelt at prayer at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. We all went out of the church in a body, wrote Allen, and they were no more plagued with us in the church. There is no evidence at all that the North was more humane than the South in its treatment of blacks in churches or anywhere else for that matter. The North could appear to be more concerned about blacks because of their work toward abolition of slavery, but the reason is clear. Slavery was not as vital to their economy as the South. Excuse me. And the text reads, Some Southern churchmen might argue that the church in the pre-Civil War days was indeed a real expression of their concern for blacks. Okay. It was an integrated church, surprisingly. H. Richard Nyball suggested the worship of white and black people together was an indication that the Great Revival and the Democratic Doctrines of the Revolution, which fostered the sense of equality, had pricked the conscience of churches on the subject of slavery. White and black worshiped together and at their best sought to realize the brotherhood Jesus had practiced and Paul had preached. There were many significant exceptions, it is true, but the general rule was that two races should be united in religion. In the Methodism and Baptist churches, it was the conviction of the essential equality of all souls before God, which inspired the white missionary and an occasional master to share the benefits of a common gospel in a common church with members of the other race. Apparently, Nybaum's identity with their oppressor got the best of his theological and sociological analysis, for it's clear that integration was a practice in the Southern churches because, as Nybaum himself says, it was the less of two evils. It was dangerous to the slave system to allow slaves to have independent, uncontrolled churches. <laughs> the abolitionist activity in the northern black churches and the Nat Turner Revolt of 1831 reaffirmed this fear. 
Laws were even passed which prevented the education of blacks and the assembly of more than five blacks without white supervision. Rather than being in being a demonstration of brotherhood or equality, the integration into churches was a means of keeping a close watch on blacks. Halsen is right about the church. It was and is the mother of racial patterns, the purveyor of errant sedatives, and the teacher of immoral moralities. Man, I love that. I, I got to write that down right there. The white church is the mother of racial patterns and the purveyor of Aryan sedatives and the teacher of modern immoralities. Mm -mm -mm. Okay. The text reads, the Quakers were the only denominational group which showed any signs of radical obedience to Christ. Its leaders, George Fox and George Keith, declared clearly the contradiction between slavery and the gospel of Christ. An example of Quaker's view of slavery is illustrated by the resolution of 16888 passed in Germantown. Now, though they are black, we cannot conceive there is more liberty to have them slaves as it is to have other white ones. There is a saying that we shall do to all men like as we will be done ourselves. Making no difference of what generation, descent, or color they are. And those who steal or rob men, and those who buy or purchase them, are they not all alike? Here is liberty of conscience, which is right and reasonable. Here ought to be likewise liberty of the body, except of evildoers, which is another case. But to bring men hither, or to rob and sell them against their will, we stand against. Ah, excuse me. The Quakers were against slavery. Or, let me be clear, in 1688, they clearly made a statement that they were against slavery. It is unfortunate that such men were in the minority, even among Quakers. There was a temptation to let economics rather than religion determine one's actions. The Quakers, like most groups who could afford it, owned slaves. See? But the spirit of freedom and liberty in civil matters was at least a concern of some Quakers, which is more than can be said of others. In light of this history, it is not surprising that the white churchmen have either condemned black power or, as is more often the case, join the other silent intellectuals in, excuse me, in our colleges and universities. They have never championed black freedom. During the most fervent period of lynching, the church scarcely said a word against it. In their silence is what? Complicity. Lasher's study of the 25 major denominations comprising the Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America shows that until 1929, most churches scarcely uttered a word about white inhumanity towards black. In fact, Gunnar Myderall pointed out Methodist and Baptist preachers were active in reviving the Ku Klux Klan after the First World War. There is a little question that the church has been and is a racist institution, and there is little sign that she even cares about it. So far as the major denominations are concerned, it is a story of indifference, vacillation, duplicity. It is a history in which the church not only compromised its ethic 
to the mood and practice of the times, but was itself actively unethical, sanctioning the enslavement of human beings, producing the patterns of segregation, urging upon the oppressed Negro, the extractive sedatives of the gospel, and promulgated a doctrine of interracial morality, which is in itself immoral. <laughs> Some churchmen probably would want to point out their unselfish involvement in the civil rights struggle of the 1950s and 1960s. It was a black man, Martin Luther King Jr., who challenged the conscience of his nation by his unselfish giving of his time, eventually his life, for poor blacks and white America. During the initial stages of his civil disobedience campaign, most white churchmen stood silently by and criticized with their political cohorts, and most who eventually joined him in his work were Johnny Come Lately. Even here, their participation reminds one of the white churchmen of the pre-Civil War era. As long as the South was the target, Northern churchmen could assure themselves that it was a Southern problem, totally unrelated to their own Northern parishes. Most thus came to think of themselves as missionaries for Christ in a foreign land. But when King brought his work North, many retreated and complained that he was confused in politics with religion. King only regained his popularity among northern churchmen after the emergence of the concept of black power. They came to view King's nonviolence as a lesson to evils. I am convinced that King's death was due to an ethos created by the white church, which permits whites to kill blacks at will without any fear of reprisal. Few white men have been convicted and imprisoned for slaying a black or a white involved in civil rights. Since the emergence of the recent rebellion in the cities, it seems that most of the white churches do is tell blacks to obey the law of the land. Sounds like white evangelicals are big on it. Hmm. Occasionally, a church body passes a harmless resolution. Imagine men dying of hunger, children maimed from rat bites, women dying of despair, and the church passes a resolution. Perhaps it is impossible to prevent riots, but one can fight against the conditions which cause them. The white church is placed in question because of its contribution to a structure which produces rights. Some churchmen reply, we do condemn the deplorable conditions which produce urban rights. We do condemn racism and all the evils arising from it. But to the extent that this is true, the church, with the exception of a few individuals, voices its condemnation in a style of resolutions that are usually equivocal and almost totally unproductive. If the con condemnation was voiced, it was not understood. The church should speak in a style which avoids abstractions. Its language must be backed up with the re relevant involvement in the affairs of the people who suffer. It must be a grouping whose community life and personal involvement are coherent with its language about the gospel. The church should speak in a style which avoids abstractions. Its language must be back with the relevant involvement in the affairs of people who suffer. It must be a grouping whose community life and personal involvement are coherent with this language about the gospel. Mm -mm -mm. 
Wow. I want to go back to that one particular section in this chapter. I just I just love what he said, and I think it's so poignant. Rather than being a demonstration of brotherhood or equality, the integration into churches was a means of keeping a close watch on blacks. Halsen is right about the church. It was and is the mother of racial patterns, the purveyor of Aryan sedatives, and the teacher of immoral moralities. Man. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes the reading for tonight, episode 15. In our next episode, man, we will finish up chapter 3 and be prepared to move to chapter 4, the black church and black power. It's your boy, Big L, man. I thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turners. I enjoy this time that we spend together, man. Till next time.